It's midnight in America, and this is the Hour of Decision. My name is Lou Moore, and my program, Hour of Decision, can be found on News for America at newsforamerica.org. The two-party system. Let's talk about that a little bit. I was just at a meeting the other night, a pretty large gathering of America First types, constitutionalist types, in my home state of Utah, and I heard overheard people talking about, boy, we got to get rid of this Republican Party. I'll tell you, these parties, they don't listen to us. We need to start our own party. The grassroots are it, blah, blah. And I just get triggered by that. First of all, political parties are not a vehicle for you to proclaim your purity and total allegiance to a set of values or your morality in the public sphere, etc. That's not the purpose of political parties. Political parties are tools, just as elections can be tools. I hate to say politicians generally are tools. I mean that a couple of ways. But uh, they're a tool. That They're not a purity test. And anyway, so I want to talk a little bit tonight about parties and about the two-party system as it has developed in America. And of course, when we say it's a system, it's just how things have developed here in the political culture. Uh, You know, we don't have to have a two-party system. It's not in the Constitution. Our founding fathers originally and uh, and George Washington most vociferously were not for political parties. But unfortunately, uh, when there's disagreement, as there was in Washington's cabinet, primarily between Jefferson and Hamilton over the role of government, a disagreement that has continued down through the years to this day, essentially between two parties, the two main parties in the system today. Yeah, when you have that happen, it's just, uh, you know, it's a, it's a natural course of events that there's going to be parties develop. Because in politics, you have to organize. The biggest problem we have right now is that we are not as organized as our enemies. Very biggest problem. We're not as well financed. We don't have the ground troops. We don't have the theory of action. We don't have a strategy. We don't have the tactics uh, at the level that the left has in America. So parties did begin around essentially the, the ideas of Hamilton and Jefferson. Hamilton believed in tariffs, believed in a central bank believed America had to build industry uh, and pay its debts on time to foreigners uh, to keep us from being engulfed at some point in the fragile beginnings of our republic by the large colonial powers uh, of Europe, not just England, but, you know, there was also France in the picture, Spain, etc. So that was his view. Jefferson's view was that the government should be minimally involved, particularly the federal government. He was barely even for a federal government. And, and so his belief was there should be as little government intervention as possible. He did not believe in central banks. He did not believe in tariffs. He thought it was fine if farmers, and he was from a more agricultural area, won't get all the way down into the rabbit hole of all of those. I mean, so many issues intersect with this, you know, this difference between the two. But anyway, Jefferson believed in smaller government. Hamilton believed in a more active, not, not, not a government necessarily like we have now, but a more active federal government. And so from that, you got a little bit down the road, the Federalists, who were basically supporters of Hamilton, and the Democratic Republicans who were um, in the more Jeffersonian camp, 
And they e- evolved into, you know, before too long, the Democrats, the same party, technically the same party we have today, the small government party, and the Whigs, the Whigs who were the more activist party and the party that believed in central banking, believed the government should spend money on building canals and uh, get very involved in economic development and things like that. So uh, that system, the party system, kind of developed from that point. Uh, There were Democrats in the North and the South. There were Whigs in the North and the South. But of course, over time, slavery, as well as some very significant economic issues, regional economic issues between the North and the South, created more and more division in the country. And uh, the Whigs petered out. They had not been as successful over time as the Democrats had been electorally in electing presidents and in the Congress and whatnot. And uh, and so the, the Whigs petered out, and the Northern Whigs became the basis of the Republican Party, which ostensibly was organized in the 1850s to oppose slavery. But, you know, there was still this whole question of how active the government, the federal government, should be vis-a-vis the states and, you know, in the lives of individual Americans. Uh, The Democrats continued to have supporters in the North and the South. Uh, You know, Andy Jackson was a Democrat, and that was in uh, the—he became president in the 1820s, you know, and and it was a real revolution when he came in because he got rid of all of the civil servants before they had civil service protection. He got rid of all— of the government employees pretty much in Washington, D.C. that generally uh, had been supporting this other faction that went from being Federalists to National Republicans to Whigs. And, uh, you know, personnelist policy and keep an eye on what Mr. Trump might do should he get uh, elected once again here in 2024, because the biggest thing that, in my opinion... Uh, prevented Trump from prosecuting a more robust agenda worthy people around him and the entire bureaucracy and what we now call the deep state. Anyway, I I digress. But you had uh, at the time just before the Civil War broke out, you had this new party, the Republicans, gaining a lot of steam in the North, uh, co-opting the Whigs of the North. And then you had the Democrats who were still a party strong in different areas of the country. So civil war occurred. The Democrats were pretty much hung with the uh, idea that they were not loyal enough to the country, even though a lot of Democrats were, you know, fought in the war. Uh, the 1864 candidate for president of the Democrats was a general, and uh, I'm forgetting his name now, but McClellan, General McClellan, and he lost to Lincoln, but in 1864, but uh, he was a Democrat. And, and in the elections that at that time only, you know, did not include the South, who was in the Confederacy at that point. So after the Civil War, Republicans were very strong and uh, partisanship was very high in many ways connected to the Civil War. Certainly in the South it was. Uh, so the Reconstruction of the South was a huge federal project, intruding into every aspect of the lives of the Southerners who had been in states that rebelled. And so Republicans very dominant. In 1877, though, in the election of 1876, such a close election, particularly in the House of Representatives, you know, I went to the House, Electoral College, 
that a deal was cut, allowing the Republicans to continue in the White House, but having the Reconstruction Project essentially coming to an end, allowing white Southerners who had been involved or who may have been involved in the Confederacy, allowing them to again organize politically and vote. And they became solidly Democrat. And in the South, uh, the political party was called the White Man's Party, which were the Democrats. But that was not true in the North, where there were still a lot of Democrats, primarily immigrants, the Irish, the other immigrant groups who just did not want the government bothering them, did not want them taking their alcohol away, which began to be an issue. Um, you know, they were Democrats. And the West, uh, there was also still a lot of Democrats, that were, a lot of them involved with the mining interests. And, and for various reasons, there were Democrats in the West that were not sympathetic to the Confederates. So the Democrats became kind of a coalition party that way uh, in opposition and heated opposition to the Republicans who continued to tell everyone, we won the Civil War, we're the loyal people. And they used to wave the bloody shirt at Republican rallies, which was supposed to be, you know, some guy's part of some guy's uniform that had blood on it uh, from the Civil War. And they uh, and, uh, turned out extremely high during this time. Uh, the highest points in the history of our country, 80% of uh, eligible voters, not registered voters, pretty much, were turning out. And, and that's uh, because it was highly charged, highly partisan uh, between these two parties. And, you know, I'm making a lot of generalizations here, but generally the Republicans continue to be the big government party and the Democrats, the small government party. Do not be, you know, these propagandists, some of these guys like Dave Barton, who, I, you know, I'm not against him, but, you know, he put this thing together years ago that's now been shown hundreds of times about Oh, the Democrats, they were just nothing but Ku Klux Klan. They hated the blacks, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, not quite that simple, not hardly. And most conservative Republicans who he shows this movie to would have probably been more sympathetic to the Democrats uh, during this period of time, not the Republicans, as uh, Murray Rothbard and, and many others uh, who really looked at, the, you know, into the core of these issues have pointed out over the years. Anyhow. Still the two-party system, but now we come into a shift and what the political science call, uh, scientists call a shift in the party system. And that is the beginnings of, well, first the populist movement, which was among farmers, a lot of whom were in the South, and, and then the urban progressives in the North, uh, both of whom wanted more a more active government, but were not necessarily affiliated uh, with the folks funding the Republican Party. Won't get into a lot of detail here. I do get into quite a bit of detail about this period of time uh, in my book, Forerunner, The Unlikely Role of Ron Paul, which you can purchase at lumore.com for $14.95. Ha ha, just snuck a commercial in. But I, I, I do go, go into some detail about the history of parties, and mainly in that book, the history of grassroots and populist action through the years. So anyhow, uh, the Democrats now are beginning to swing toward this progressive movement, which is a totally a big government movement. It's loaded with the socialists of that time. Uh, remember that Karl Marx was a columnist in the New York Herald Tribune in the 1860s, a big friend of Horace Greeley, 
and he had a lot of followers in the United States. Uh, some of Lincoln's generals were about Marxist people. Never knew this or don't remember this. Anyway, it's not called out very often. But the socialist movement uh, and Marxist thinking uh, didn't start, you know, in the 1960s, hardly. And that uh, started more in the 1860s and even before that. But anyway, so a lot of these groups are now uniting around the progressive movement, which essentially said, boy, science is advancing and we have all these social problems, all these different issues. We need experts, scientific experts, political scientists, economists, people like this to tell our elected leaders what to do and then they need to do it and they need to expand the role of government to make sure that all the great advice they're getting from these people get done. And uh, so the, uh, the progressive movement now as move, moves into the Democrat Party, it's also uh, had a natural home in the Republican Party, which already liked activist government in areas like building railroads and canals and starting agricultural colleges around the country and all the other, all the other things they were doing. And so you, you get to the place where you get to the election of uh, 1912 and you have two progressives from each party running against each other, Woodrow Wilson and William Howard Taft. And then you actually, for a bonus, you get a third progressive, Teddy Roosevelt, who had been president, who gave up the presidency and let Taft run as a Republican. Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, had been a Republican before that. And he ran in as the leader of the progressive party and running out to the left of either uh, Wilson or Taft, both of whom claimed to be progressives and trust busters and all this. And then on top of that, you had this flat-out socialist around Eugene Debs, who I believe was in prison during this election. An interesting fact that when we look at all the things coming at Donald Trump today, but you had four candidates, all they got more than a million votes each, and even Debs, were all for a lot more government uh, and, 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 and no real Jeffersonian-type uh, uh, opposing that. And so, so what's ha what happened is, is uh, the party system is shifting and things are becoming very murky. And, and of course, they, they fought with each other over various things. But the general philosophy that had divided the parties before that has been really obscured, you know, whether you're for more or less government. And uh, so you go into 1920s, uh, the Republicans were generally for less government because the people were very sick of the globalists around Wilson. And this is the other thing. You had globalists in both parties. And basically, that I mean, that that's the, the breakout. You have experts running. The progressives want uh, experts running things. And you, you wanted globalism abroad and socialism of some form or activist government at home. And uh, the public was done with the globalism uh, after World War One, which most people could not understand why the hell we were over in Europe, even in, in the limited numbers, relatively limited numbers that, that uh, the Doughboys were, uh, you know, compared to World War II, certainly. But uh, so the public was wanting to rev up the economy with all the new technology out there uh, and uh, new devices in, in the economy like consumer credit and time payments and, uh, and new media you know, the radio. And America did not want to, uh, America was not real serious about all this uh, government stuff at this point. 
But uh, the, the Democrats are left with a very odd coalition because uh, the people in the South hated the Republicans so much from Reconstruction, and we're talking about white Southerners, that they, that they were Democrat to the core no matter what. And, and at the same time, you know, and blacks were not voting in large numbers in the South. And there, so there were still people in the Democratic Party that were in that, a lot of people, and that were in that party because they were for small government, and a small federal government. And uh, so the Democrats had a particularly odd coalition. They had the, you know, the Klan at this time, the Ku Klux Klan had spread way outside the South, but numerically the strongest Ku Klux Klan was during the 20s, the 1920s. And, you know, to a great degree, and particularly in the South, they were Democrats. Uh, at the same time, you had people in the North who were, you know, on the edge of communism, uh, wanting all kinds of social change, including changes in racial policies in the country. And, that, you know, they're all Democrats. And so it's that's when Will Rogers during this time said, I don't belong to an organized party. I'm a Democrat. And to a degree, that's what he was talking about. So the Republicans were uh, kind of soft progressive but, you know, some conservative tendencies were definitely coming out. They cut off immigration in the 1920s. Uh, they put a large tariff wall around the United States to protect industry. Uh, they did not like the communists who were gaining uh, membership and power. And some of the labor unions and the communist organization itself was organizing and, and beginning to do their mischief because of the fact that the Soviet Union is now on the scene having won in the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. And they have this outfit called the Comintern, this international outfit with people from every country plotting uh, to spread communism all over the world. So, uh, you know, those kind of issues were building. Anyway, a lot of issues in the 20s of different types, presaging issues that we have today. But anyway, so Republicans not pronouncing that we're for small government, but not doing a lot about making the government any bigger. Uh, the Democrats all over the map trying to keep their coalition together. So then the Great Depression hit in 1930, and then and the it's blamed on the Republican president of that time, Herbert Hoover. Won't get into all the uh, reasons that was or how accurate that was. We will, but not in this. Not in this presentation. But anyway, so there they brought in Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a shirt sleeve relative of Teddy Roosevelt. The Democrats brought him in in 1932 to run against a very unpopular Hoover, middle of the Great Depression now, millions of people out of work. And Roosevelt, uh, his platform, he sounded like a good uh, good Democrat of the past. He wanted to cut the budget. You know, we got to get the, no, no deficit spending. We have to have more discipline. We need to tighten our belts. And then, you know, he won that election. And then he, you know, he lied his head off, which is something he did frequently during, you know, during his entire political career. And in the first hundred days, that term, the first hundred days for any president that we use now comes from his first hundred days of frenzied socialist activity to take over as much of the government as humanly possible uh, and uh, as much of the economy, excuse me, as humanly possible and regulation and, and anyway, a, a dramatic expansion of the government. And it was in the Depression. People were like, you know, we need help. 
And a lot of people thought it was very reasonable for the government to get a lot more involved. And so, and, and Roosevelt won big, and then he won even bigger in 1936, his first reelect. He won big in the congressional elections that Democrats did in 1934. And so you have now with the Republicans who had, didn't really have a single philosophy either, but you know had a lot of progressives and whatnot in their ranks earlier on. You get what is called Me Too liberalism, where the Republican platform is, we hate Roosevelt, uh, and, uh, but we just want to make the government that is expanding on every front more efficient and maybe not have it expand quite as much. So you don't really have a philosophic breakout, you know, like there was earlier on and there has, you know, come to be again. Uh, but you had the Me Too liberals of the Republicans in the 1930s. But, you know, the beginnings of some definite shifts with the Republicans. And so, you know, the, the term rhino, uh, Republican in name only, I think it is applicable now, and I'll get into that in a minute. But, you know, it, it's not because the Republicans were always standing up for the Constitution, limited government, against globalism, against communism, all this stuff. You know, that's not the history of the Republicans, I think you can see by now. And so, you know, the, the Republican leadership in the 30s were not conservatives, not by the standard that we use now when we use that probably poorly, a poor, as a poor description as it is, because we're in a shifting time again. So my big point here now, and I'll hammer on this for the rest of this broadcast, is that the parties shift. They shift their belief, but there are two parties. You know, other parties come and go, but the two principal parties, which now, you know, are firmly, you know, starting from the Civil War on are the Republicans and the Democrats. And uh, I don't see that changing anytime soon. And I don't think it should, I, I don't really think it even should change. That is what's needed, in my opinion. But anyhow, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, so Roosevelt is the dominant political figure, a very strong president. He has a strong backing in Congress although that does recede over time. Won't get into all those details. But then you have World War II come in. And, of course, we all united in the Great War effort. Roosevelt, a closet globalist, uh, you know, couldn't, and, and somebody desperate to do something about the fact that his policies were not solving uh, the issues and, the, uh, and not fixing the Great Depression, was delighted to get into a war where manufacturing had to be revved up and where unemployment disappeared. And, you know, the Great Depression ended with the buildup and the prosecution of World War II. So at the end of the war, Roosevelt was delighted to help inaugurate all these world globalist institutions like the World Bank and the UN itself as the umbrella uh, NATO, all these different organizations that were globalist in uh, nature. And, uh, you know, he, does, he passes from the scene. But uh, we have now what is called a foreign policy consensus, which you probably have heard this term. And, you know, we used to have a foreign policy consensus. Republicans and Democrats worked together. Uh, yeah, they worked together on the globalist project. They certainly did. And uh, so with Truman and then Eisenhower, 
very much a globalist, Eisenhower. We're going to talk more about him at some point because he's really a very important president for looking at a lot of the problems we have now and why they haven't been addressed sooner and uh, by the Republicans. So you have both parties are globalist. Uh, both parties are okay with regulation, federal regulation, government intervention in the economy, government spending to try to solve a lot of different problems. But the Republicans are much more restrained in their desires. Uh, but then you come in the 1960s, you get Kennedy, uh, who was just a totally ineffective president. And I am not a fan of Kennedy. And I'm probably some people listening to me that are. I am not. That will be yet another episode I want to do about JFK. But uh, uh, Johnson prosecuted essentially what JFK laid out in the New Frontier, only he called it the Great Society. And you get the second big socialist onslaught of regulations, agencies, huge spending, and more foreign intervention as well, because we got have Vietnam now coming into the picture. So the Republicans, the Republican establishment, they're criticizing Johnson all the time. But again, you know, we just want to do it a little different, that kind of a thing. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller. George Romney, if that name is familiar, the last name, you know, all these guys. And, you know, they're running the party, the Eastern Establishment. And uh, kind of like kind of the way they still, they're still running the party. But at the grassroots, people, it was exploding for a guy named Barry Goldwater, who up front was against globalism, who was against the Great Society, who was against the expansion of government and wanted to roll back the socialist aspects of the federal government aggressively. And he had a tremendous ground, groundswell of support, a lot of young people supporting him. But uh, he had the misfortune of running, by the time he actually ran for president, uh, his opponent was carrying the flag of the assassinated, romantic, uh, uh, dashing Camelot figure of John F. Kennedy. And Goldwater was wiped out uh, in that election. But his ideas continued and started having success almost right away when Ronald Reagan, one of his followers, was elected governor of California, of all places, by a large margin, using those same ideas two years later. And that was the beginning of the classic conservative movement. And, uh, and so you now have a, a organized force in one of the two political parties pushing hard for smaller government, for against globalism, and the beginnings of really the movements that we see today. And so, you know, time goes on, people are co-opted, they lied, they didn't do everything they said they'd do, the government kept getting bigger, the Republicans made it bigger, the Democrats made it bigger, they were still all for overseas adventures at the end of the day, and uh, won't get into all the details of that right now. Uh, this is, We're getting to a time now where most of you are probably pretty familiar with all of the various things that happened. You know, you have George Bush in there, uh, he was supposed to save us at a Republican House, Republican Senate. I'm talking about George W. Bush. And, you know, he expanded federal spending to education. You know, he gave us a huge expansion of the government with the Part D, Medicare, the prescription drug benefit. You know, he got us into Afghanistan. He got us into Iraq. And then he was, uh, he was the first one before Obama got in to issue the humongous bailout to Wall Street whose uh, greed and perfidity uh, caused, almost caused the collapse of our entire economy, if, so, if not society, uh, with the issues around the Great Recession. 
have a whole chapter on that. Uh, it's called Everything They Told Us Was Wrong. Uh, that is a chapter in my book, Forerunner, The Unlikely Role of Ron Paul. Anyhow, I've, I've skipped over some stuff, but, you know, the evangelicals, a lot of them based in the South, had stayed with the Democrats, as most Southerners did, but uh, Ronald Reagan pulled them across. I kind of skipped over Reagan a little bit. Uh, he, in many ways, uh, didn't rock the boat with globalism, but he certainly uh, rocked the boat as far as being confrontational with communism and the Soviet Union. And he made some attempts at rolling back government, not very successful, really, but he did cut taxes pretty dramatically. And although he lost some of those gains, too, won't get into all that now. But um, but the movement, the conservative movement that was basically nationalistic, that was not for welfare and transferring government resources and so much government, all of that, uh, you know, this continues in various forms in the Republican Party. The Democratic Party that had uh, you know, a lot of these Southerners were conservative, quote unquote, in some areas, and certainly in civil rights legislation and things like that. They tended to side with the Republicans. Uh, but now they are migrating en masse, starting with Goldwater into the Republican Party. And this sets up uh, the very partisan dynamic we have today, because for a long time, uh, you had conservative, essentially conservative Democrats wanted to help the military in many, in many ways, voting with the Republicans uh, on that were more conservative on a lot of the issues, while liberal Republicans, the Eastern Establishment Republicans that were also on the West Coast and some other places, really scattered throughout the country, they were voting frequently with the Democrats. And so that kept things from being so harshly partisan. Uh, generally, it just kept the deck stacked against us, the grassroots uh, America First types that we are today. But over time, the Democrat, the more conservative Democrats either migrated into the Republicans like Strom Thurmond was a key figure in that, or else just new people emerged that were starting to win. Republicans were starting to win elections in the South, which they had not done at all for 100 years. And suddenly they're winning elections. So that's now making the partisan dynamic harsher, uh, if you're following me. And, and then a guy named Pat Buchanan came along, and then a guy named Ron Paul came along. And while neither one of them had electoral success, a whole movement of people in the Republican Party uh, were coalescing around three big issues, endless wars, immigration, and, and the fact that our trade, our, our economy was being stripped of manufacturing, all going to foreign places. And after 2000, uh, when the WTO uh, got up and going and we gave China most favored uh, nation status on a permanent basis, uh, you know, en masse, our industry was transported over to China. And so uh, so this is a nationalist uh, movement. And evangel a lot of evangelicals, Pat Buchanan, a pro-life Catholic, Ron Paul, a pro-life part uh, Protestant. So both of those movements, and they kind of intersected. I can testify that uh, to that personally, having run Dr. Paul's campaign in 2008 as his campaign manager. A network is expanding all over the country, even though it's not reflected in, uh, you know, the Republican nominees for president, not in, in Bush, not in McCain, in Romney. But that is spreading, and of course, that set the table for 
Donald Trump's succession in 2016. So now, what am I saying here overall? I'm saying a couple of things. I'm saying, one, this country has basically stayed on track with what they call a two-party system, and you ain't going to break it. You're not going to break it. Uh, I'm not anytime soon. And I'm not so sure that's a good idea. I don't know if we want nine political parties having to form coalitions. I would argue there's more chicanery goes on in Europe in these parliaments, uh, even than in our Congress. But, you know, you always have factions, things like that. But so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is political parties are weapons. They're weapons. They're not a statement of your personal purity on all of the issues. They're just not. That's not what politics is about. Politics is about taking power. That's about taking power. And we need to take power again in this country. That's what we need today. Not be perfect on uh, every single issue. And, and my third statement here is the Republican Party has shifted. Political scientists, again, they call these party systems. And we're, we are entering a new party system where... Yes, we have the relics of the old system. We have Ronna McDaniel, Ron, Ron, Ronna Romney McDaniel. You know, we have uh, you know, Mitch McConnell. Uh, we have Mitt Romney, although he's on the way out. Anyway, we have all these folks that are called now rhinos who are globalist, who don't cut spending, who are open to new federal programs of every different type. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, and we got a lot of them in the Congress. We got a big Congress problem because grassroots action hasn't really uh, filtered into the congressional races like it has at the top. And now as it also has at the bottom with school boards and all of the turnover that's going on, great uh, developments around the country for, with grassroots action at school boards. But, but you state legislatures and uh, particularly the Congress are kind of omitted from that list. And so congressmen are still reliant on the old funding system to fund their races, which is sucking up to big business, in the case of the Republicans, sucking up to the Chamber of Commerce, and essentially uh, buying off on the globalist project and buying off on at least the developments to date and the growth of big government domestically. So we got a big problem there for sure. But, you know, despite the fact that there's all these relics, I'm calling them relics because this is not where the party, this is not where the Republican Party is at today. The Republican Party is pretty clear. You know, Iowa caucus coming up tonight. Actually, this, I don't know how soon this podcast will get out, but the, the Iowa caucuses are tonight. But, um, you know, it's looking like that Trump is again going to crush his opponents despite every single obstacle in the world being put in his way. Uh, by the establishment in this country. But uh, the movement is continuing, and now we're getting more media, we're getting more uh, young organizers, uh, we're getting, uh, on every level, the Republican Party is moving into position as the America First Party. Just because Ronna McDaniel's not there, just because Mitch McConnell's still stabbing you in the back, I mean, it, you can't do this overnight. But the public is with us, I believe, on a lot of the key issues. They're starting to see what's going on with the social engineering in the schools. They do not want to be tangled up all over the world in wars that do we do not win or we are not trying to win. And, and more and more, particularly after the pandemic, 
uh, they're seeing that, you know, we are totally reliant on China now for so many things and on foreign uh, manufacturers as a whole. And, and that's not right. And, and, you know, we a strong country is going to be able to manufacture the things it needs to protect itself, to feed itself, which is not an issue we have right now, but get the medication it needs, et cetera. And we are woefully vulnerable because of this globalist system. But more and more people are seeing it, just as the pandemic also helped a lot of parents see what's actually going on in the schools. Uh, and so it, it's terrible as the pandemic was in terms of vaccine injuries, in terms of, uh, uh, the uh, you know, what's happened to our children, uh, you know, the psychological damage to them, to us, to all the issues. You know, some things came out of that pandemic uh, that were for the good in terms of moving the project forward to make America first in the minds of our elected officials and to, you know, get rid of this Marxist shadow coming over the entire country and and the whole idea that the elites have had forever to converge uh, the socialist, socialist, front socialists like China and, and other countries and to converge them with the United States into a one-world government. That project is moving very speedily, but a lot more people see it now, let me tell you. A whole lot more people see it now than they did 15 or 20 years ago. So I'm saying, you know, if you want to be in and you want to start a third party or whatever, fine. It's not easy to start a party. Uh, not. It's very difficult if, if it's going to have any kind of an impact. And... Third parties can be taken over and co-opted and taken over too. It's actually a lot easier uh, because they're small. They're desperate for money. And, you know, it's not a silver bullet by any means. And it's such a heavy lift when we have a party with a party structure. We have an electorate now within that party that wants to move things the way we want things to be moved. We have leaders coming forward. Uh, we need... This is not a time to start a third party, in my opinion, but it is a time to put the pedal to the metal, to get involved in your precinct, to get involved with candidates uh, who you know are not just honest, but have a clue as to what they need to do at the school board, at the city council, at the state legislature, uh, legislature in the Congress, uh, and, you know, as well as at the top and you know, we need Trump. We need Trump back in there. That is my opinion. Anyhow, a little bit about the two-party system and a little lecture on why going to a third party is not a good idea. I mean, it's just not a good idea. Don't give money to the RNC. Don't give them any money. My God, don't do that. Give money to candidates that you know are going to go forward to the best of their ability within the political realities of the day to move the ball down the field. You know, put your effort into candidates that you have that belief in. But uh, do not, do not go into the third-party thing. That is my best advice, and I'm going to leave you with that. My name is Lou Moore. This show is called The Hour of Decision. It's part of News for America at newsforamerica.org. Thank you so much.